This is Oncology Republic. I'm Felicity Nelson. This episode, I chat with the CEO and the lead researcher of an AI company based in Brisbane called Max Kelson. This company is looking to crack some of the most difficult problems in oncology using artificial intelligence. The first problem they're looking to solve centers around trying to locate the origin of cancer in patients where the primary cause is unknown. The other tricky problem is predicting which patients will respond to immunotherapy. But if oncologists are ever gonna trust AI to assist with diagnoses, they need algorithms that can process uncertainty in the same way that a doctor does. So, to start off with, can you introduce yourselves for me? Uh, sure thing. I'm Nick Thurkelson Terry. I'm the CEO and co founder of Max Kelson. Uh, my name is Maciej Szaskowski, and I'm the head of research at Max Kelson. And can you give me a little background on what is Max Kelson? Yeah, of course. Um, so, we're a, Max Kelson's actually a specialist machine learning um, and artificial intelligence, if you like the marketing term. Uh, firm uh, based in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, we're six years old. Uh, we work across both uh, a commercial realm and a research realm. Um, obviously, Matrix here today is our head of research, but we have a very strong commercial business that works in a range of areas. Most of our business is in healthcare and working at the intersection of technology and the, and the delivery of healthcare. We also work with other industry sectors, including travel, uh, resources, oil and gas, public sector, and so on. Um, we're a team of about 50 at this stage. Talk me through that example that you mentioned, the uh, cancer of the unknown primary. So, you know, what's the problem? How does AI potentially address that problem? And how might this help oncologists eventually? So given the audience, obviously, don't need to explain too much of the background on CAP, but just to give an example, in 2018, we saw over 2,700 cancer patients die from CAP in Australia. And what's important to note is that the fact that uh, cancer of unknown primary uh, only accounts for about 5% of cancer patients, but it is a fourth killer of cancer patients. So, so I, I mean, the, 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 the idea is that um, we've actually been studying, doing some background work on trying to understand how, uh, where actually AI can help and what's the, uh, what's, what, what are the actual data uh, characteristics that uh, aid themselves best to um, AI modeling. And uh, what we have found is the, the machine learning enables a really good modeling of the data and provides really good outcomes, particularly in a very complex data sets. And these complex data sets, uh, the complexity of them comes from the multidimensional structure of the data. There are evidence to show that if you can identify primary quickly and start treating the patient, you increase their outcomes, uh, overall survival rate, but also some clinicians are obviously would like to improve the treatment by knowing the actual profile of the cancer itself. So that's another avenue of helping clinicians to make a better decision on what sort of treatments to put an individual under. And so how does understanding the underlying genetics help with that? Great question. The, the signature of both of those, the, the tumour profile and the primary that, that the metastasized the cancer came from, are both contained within that genomic profile. It, it's the, really the challenge is that that genomic profile is incredibly complex and noisy and dimensional and so elucidating that signal is very difficult and, and traditionally is, has sort of been prohibitive in, in many applications and what we've shown is that by using you know these sort of deep learning techniques uh, we can 
not just elucidate the signal, but we can discriminate um, on that signal very efficiently with very, very high accuracy. How does that help the oncologist treat the patient? Well, there's a, I guess there's a couple of reasons in treatment, right? Um, so the first is if you're treating the secondary site and you never find the primary site, then you're not going to treat the cancer because you're, you're not actually finding the primary. So it either will metastasize elsewhere or, or the primary site will become the problem for that patient. That's probably problem number one. Problem number two, which is more practical but less biological, is that the Medicare benefit schedule in Australia and the pharmaceutical benefit schedule are, are generally discriminate on treatment options by primary site. And so if you don't have a primary site, you have you know, access to very restricted treatments through the MBS and the PBS because you don't qualify for many of the treatments available because you don't know the primary site. So there's both this, you know, obviously just in a treatment sense that you, you want to be treating the primary and, and, the, and the secondary side of the cancer so that you're you know, treating the root cause, but also in a, in a sort of practical payer sense that if you, if you don't have a primary site, you don't have access to many of the latest pharmaceuticals or, or um, you know, other treatment options that that patient may have if you have that primary site. And your approach of sort of delving into the genetics of it to try and problem solve and, and puzzle it out, is, is that sort of very far away from getting into clinical practice or are you feeling like you're sort of making steps towards it becoming an, a practical approach? Yeah, so we're hoping um, to see this in the clinic relatively soon. Uh, we're now, particularly with our cut work, which is more advanced than um, our work in IAP, we are starting to look at the pathway of translation. We've always based our research on the point of view that if, if it doesn't treat patients, it wasn't successful. And so we've always had that applied and practical view. If you take a biopsy of, say, a brain tumour, uh, and you're trying to figure out, was it melanoma that started this or was it breast cancer that started this? Yeah. You know, that's assuming that that's something that actually happens. Then how does the, the genetic code tell you that, where the cancer came from? Why would it be different? Because it came from different places in the body. The great power of the AI was the fact that you could see the landscape of all of the tissues at the same time. And what we've actually pointed out in, the paper, in, in our publication was that traditional tools are limited to sort of differential expression between just a pairwise some comparison of the tissues. So they never get to see the full landscape of all of the tissues. Whereas our models learn about the full landscape, so they can see everything. Um, and, and therefore they, they, they are capable of picking up with not too many features um, by looking at the expression profile. Where could have that particular cell come from? So if you have a cancer that originated in esophagus and, and it's metastasized, let's say, to the lung, and we biopsy out from the lung, of course, our cancers undergo mutational changes and they obviously the profile overall changes, but there are still signatures that can be, can be seen. And we've seen that with the work that we've done with metastatic cancers. There's still, there's still some residual signal that remains that's from the original tissue mm. that can be uh, differentiated from the tissue of recession. And how does it get affected as, it, say, a cancer moves through different tissue types as it spreads through the body? Do you, can you pick up that signal? You know, the cancer moved here and then it moved here and then it moved here. Or can you, is it just the primary source that you're interested in? Yeah, for us, it's just the primary source. Um, so the main signature it carries is the original cancerous cell um, mm. from, from the primary um, source. So that's the signature that gets carried through every time that, that cell multiplies. 
and the primary source is really what we're what we're interested in. So there are many complications, and of course, these data sets and these profiles do change quite profoundly. And this emphasizes the you know the need for safe approach to the profiling because these changes are, are profound and they're big and it's easy to misdiagnose. We don't know numerically models don't care they'll just give you an answer that's what they do they, they will just look at something and it'll give you an answer but if you have a good control numerical control over what you do you can approach that uh, the uh, approach the answer or find the answer as safely as you possibly can and uh, one of the testimony which we haven't mentioned yet to you know to our commitment to this algorithmic safety is the relationship that we set up with our academic our partners, where we partnered with a newly founded ARC um, Center of Excellence, known as Center for Information Resilience, whose focus is on algorithmic safety. And so this is the work we do with mathematicians, profession, academic professionals, who, who are helping us to actually make sure that everything that's done and it's developed newly, because you know we all understand that deep learning and the latest technologies or te modeling techniques that are being developed they're still very new and can be sometimes numerically or statistically immature and they have to be approached with a lot of caution. So having professionals who are very strong on, on numerical, numerical controls and understanding maths, mathematics and statistics is incredibly important. And this is why we put a lot of effort into making sure that what we do is as safe as it can be. Yeah, I think, I, I think just to zoom out from that, um, you know, your examples really, it, it's a great one because it is this problem that at some point that primary site signal is no longer detectable or at least no longer detectable by our current models. And the, the, the challenge that you'll find with many people working in the space and, and a whole lot of um, precision medicine that's based on these sort of technologies is that the machine will still give you an answer. And this is what we mean by uncertainty is, is we need the machine to be able to say, the answer is I don't know, um, because that is a reasonable answer. But most, um, most deep learning particularly is, is um, sort of deterministic in nature in so far as it doesn't have an I don't know column. It, mm -hmm. it only has the, the 33 cancer type mm -hmm. columns that you've given it. And so what we wanted to make sure was that when we develop something in this space, particularly a diagnostic tool that you know, gets used in the clinic, is that you know if there is a circumstance where the machine doesn't know, which we you know we think is probably you know three to five percent of cancer of unknown primary patients, um, the the answer is legitimately I don't know, and and then obviously that's a you know a, a discussion between the clinician and the patient is the next course. But what is better, it, it, it's better to give that than to give the incorrect answer, um, and that you know lead down a path of of the incorrect treatment for that patient. So you know this is. It, I think I think we can skim over this, and it sounds like a trivial point, but for us, it's it's one of these really cornerstone pieces that we need to get right before we can see these technologies actually used every day in the clinic in the critical path of providing care to patients. It is making sure that we are very clear on these levels of uncertainty. That's such a cool concept because that makes AI tests much more similar to all the other tests you get in medicine, where it's possible to get a. Uh, answer yeah I mean, absolutely right and and i think you know computer scientists they they kind of hate this um you know this this uncertainty thing right um computer scientists like a, an answer or not an answer and what they don't realize is in particular when they start operating in um in healthcare and medicine is that healthcare and medicine thrives on uncertainty it is an uncertain field um and uncertainty is everywhere and you're always just trying to path 
the you know part the best way forward that you can based on the information you have but nothing is that certain right um and so having an uh um as the answer <laughs> is actually not just legitimate but desirable um in the provision of healthcare, which which sometimes um you know flips computer scientists out a little and mathematicians absolutely love uncertainty so yeah. that's really so great to work with because <laughs> it's all about uncertainty for them so the other thing you are working on is immunotherapy and how to predict whether some immunotherapies will work for certain patients. Uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So this is really our flagship project that we're working on with Queensland Institute of Medical Research and Genomica, who are a, a whole genome sequencing company from there. And in the assistance of a cooperative research centres projects grant, that's a mouthful, we've really looked to answer this question with is around so immunotherapies we all know offer pretty amazing results for certain patients but they have quite low response rates relative particularly to their cost and so we see response rates different immunotherapies anywhere from sort of the high 40s percents down to the you know um, mid-teens uh, and obviously th this is <laughs> this is not good because we have very poor biomarkers beyond um, tmb at this stage there's a couple of new biomarkers coming to market, which slightly improve the response rates, but we, we still have very low response rates for these for these drugs. And, and that means a couple of things. It means, firstly, that patients that could have got a different treatment didn't and were given a drug that didn't work for them. Secondly, it means that the, the drugs are not being introduced necessarily earlier in the treatment cycle, although, you know, chemotherapy and immunotherapy being treated at once is, is happening more often, but in combinatorial treatments that help bring the treatment forward, but it, it does limit their adoption early in the treatment phase where they might be more effective. Uh, and then finally, obviously, we see a range, we see a, a fairly high impost on the PBS. I think the top five uh, line items now on the PBS are all immunotherapies. And if we think that sort of circa 70% of that expenditure, which is hundreds of millions of dollars, is sort of there's no patient benefit, we see that there, there is a very, very important need here for us to solve. And so we we sort of looked in, in market and we found that very little data, high quality data exists about patients on immunotherapies, the outcomes of them. And so we, we set about with a clinician here in Queensland, Dave Fielding, we set about setting up a study where we would track the progress of 400 lung cancer patients. We'd, we'd sequence them, we'd do whole genome sequencing, and then we would track their progress as they were treated with immunotherapies and whether they responded or not. And we, we still think that that's the biggest study of its kind to be undertaken worldwide, where circa sort of halfway through patient enrollment and uh, sequencing and monitoring. So we're, we're starting to build this really you know, incredible data set that, that, we, that we're then applying these deep learning techniques, the same techniques that we use in the CUP project to this new data set, which will allow us to discriminate or, or hopefully very, at least at much higher accuracy than we currently do using measures like TMB as to whether a patient is going to respond to an immunotherapy, a, a particular immunotherapy or not. This obviously is, you know, in the broad spectrum of, of cancers that we're applying immunotherapies to and the number of immunotherapies now on the market. Our little study around a couple of immunotherapies and just lung cancer only covers a small proportion of that market. But what we're really seeking to do is to prove out the technology is capable of doing that so that we can collect much more data across a, a, a much broader set of uh, tumor types and much broader set of pharmaceuticals. I think the other thing to remember is that because we have this response problem and therefore the impost on the, the PBS, we, we definitely see pharmaceuticals which could help patients help back. 
And so one of the real things that we want this work to do is to help bring those new therapies to market, help bring them to market in a sustainable, reimbursed way so that patients actually have access to them. How do you fund all of this work? It sounds very ex- exhaustively, you know, expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so at Max Kelson, we spend about 20% of our turnover on research. So we, we have a significant investment from our commercial operations into our research team. And further, we, we, as I mentioned before, we have one grant, which we work with, which is the, the um, Cooperative Research Centre's Projects Grant, which is fantastic. We, we have a number of other grants that we're attached to, the, the um, Centre for Information Resilience at UQ, the Automated Decision-Making Society Centre at RMIT QT, but most of those are us contributing to those centres rather than us recouping funding for our work. Look, we, we, we see the what we do day to day, which is have really brilliant data scientists, machine learning engineers, software engineers, build things for our customers around the world. You know, that's that's what our commercial business does and, and to give back, you know, the, the wider we exist, you know, it's in our mission statement. We want to apply those technologies, those people and those profits to solving really important problems, the problems of humankind we call them. And we really since day one identified cancer genomics as one of those key areas that we're interested in contributing to and so it's on us to invest in those things so obviously we want to see a a return one day as we get these things to clinic that would be great it's not why we do it but but it certainly it certainly helps but it also helps because if you end up in a commercial environment it means that you've got the research that you did into treating patients and that's really what you want Um, and you need a commercial model that works to be able to scale that to more and more patients. Matt, Jake and Nick, thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Oncology Republic podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or read more on our website, oncologyrepublic.com.au. 